Something that I've noticed has become popular in maybe the last 10 to 15 years ago are these sites, uh, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. People love to use them. My mom's on them. I know a bunch of people that are on them. And I wonder why these things have become such fads, like such crazes. Everybody wants to get involved. Everybody wants to give their, their blood or their spit and see where they came from or or who their ancestors were, who they might be related to. And I think the reason why that is such a big deal to people is because there is something inherent in us that wants to know where we come from. The the people that we have descended from and, and the places that we have originated from, to know them tells us the story of how we got here. And in very large part, Where we come from, and even more importantly, who we come from, determines who we are, for better or for worse. Think of your parents most immediately. One of the most curious things is my relationship with my dad. He and my mother split when I was one. I really had little to no relationship with him over the course of my life. And then when the Lord was gracious to bring reconciliation between he and I, Some 30 years later, as I got to know this man, I came to recognize how alike we were, not only in appearance, but in our tendencies, our little personality quirks are very alike. Our sin patterns are very similar. Why? Because he's my dad. I come from him. Something of his nature has been imparted to me and likewise his father to him, and back and back through the generations. Who you come from has determined in large part who you are. So think about that for a minute. What is your history? Where did you come from? Who have you come from? Today, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Haggai. Haggai is an Old Testament prophet. But before I get to the book, what I want to do is I want to reorient you to the Old Testament and some of the history contained within it so that we have a proper perspective as we look on the words of the prophet. So the OT, in general, is a book of history and wisdom that has a theological point. It has an end. The Old Testament is primarily a record of the one true God, Yahweh, and his particular intimate dealings with a people called Israel. And God's particular intimate dealings with this people called Israel begins with a man called Abraham, who he called out and gave promises. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, and look at the inception of this relationship. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." 
God calls a pagan man from his land to trust him and to follow him and says that he's going to multiply his seed and make him a great nation. This is Abram or Abraham. Abraham gives birth to a son named Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to a son named Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. Jacob himself wrestled with God, strove with God, and after God defeats him, he changes his name to Israel. So Jacob, Israel, has 12 sons, and those sons have sons and daughters, and they multiply, and this becomes the people of Israel. So as we look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we are looking at the history of Abraham's descendants in the flesh. Now consider this, Christians, you are Abraham's offspring. Galatians 3.29 says that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ himself was of the people of Israel. He was a descendant of Abraham in the flesh. And everyone who gets joined to Christ through faith, the scripture says you have now become part of Abraham's family. You have been grafted in, according to Romans 11, grafted into Israel spiritually. And so as you read the Old Testament, Throughout it, as a Christian, you are, in some sense, looking upon your family history. Spiritually, Israel are your forefathers. This is where you come from. These are your people, for better or for worse. Now, I could expand that more theologically and kind of hit at all the nuances, but I think this perspective alone today will give you a good grasp of of how I want you to see this text and regard the Old Testament with a little more interest, right? Israel's history is history of the Christian. Now, there's one major difference, one major difference that we always want to keep in mind is that as you look at Israel, they were under the Old Covenant, They were under the covenant that God made with them on the Mount of Sinai with curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience and very particular ceremonial rules and laws. We are not under that covenant. God has made a new covenant with his people, the covenant of the gospel, the covenant made in Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of similarities and and one major, major difference between us and the Israel of the Old Testament. Now, what if you're not a Christian? And what what does the Old Testament have to do with you then? Well, the Old Testament is the history of how God deals with man. And we see his particular intimate dealings with a people called Israel, but God deals with sinful man throughout the Old Testament. And all men, Jew or Gentile, believer or unbeliever, are descended from Adam, whom God created and sent him to multiply and fill the earth. We are all the descendants of Adam. We all share the same nature. So really and truly, we are all one race of people with the same 
history. And so the, o, the OT, the Old Testament, shows every person where they came from, their family traits, their family history. Well, what ties us all most intimately to the Old Testament is that the God who deals with Israel, who deals with man in all of the Old Testament texts is the very same God who deals with us. So in a household, if you're a younger sibling, there's wisdom for you. What you should do is watch your older siblings as they relate to your parents. Right? See, see what they do that's pleasing to their parents. See how, see how your parents react. See, see how they get into trouble and how you can avoid getting into trouble. Your older siblings are there as an example and a pattern, either for you to follow when they do good or to avoid when they do bad. And things will go well with you in the home if you pay attention to what is pleasing and displeasing to your parents. That's how we should read the Old Testament. We should see in history how Yahweh deals with people who are just like us, people who are of the same sinful nature, and we can see what pleases him, what displeases him, and what we need to do so that things will go well with us. So whenever you approach the history of the Old Testament, which unfolded in time some 3,000 years ago, don't be deceived as to think that they are really so far removed from us. Look for the family resemblance, both in faith and in failure. For better or for worse, they are us. In Hebrews, which Pastor Ed is preaching through and coming to the end, it opens saying, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Haggai is one of the many prophets that God used to speak to Israel. And we have about 16 or 17 different prophetic books collected in Holy Scripture. And they have one particular thing in common. They're all hard to understand. Right, they're, they're filled with poetry and figures and descriptive language. The, pro, the, the prophets do weird things to get their point across. You know, Hosea goes and he marries a prostitute and go, and go takes her back to himself. Jeremiah has to lay on his side for 390 days and cook his food over some nasty stuff. And the, the prophets are hard to understand a lot. Mercifully, the beginning of Haggai that we're taking up today is fairly straightforward. The most important thing to understanding the prophetic books is context. Right? What is the situation? What is the state of the people? Why is God sending this particular prophet at this particular time? If we get that, then we'll do better in understanding what's being said. Haggai is one of the last prophets to speak to Israel before God gives them the silent treatment for about 500 years until Christ shows up. And so the weight of everything that God speaks through Haggai will be best felt if we recognize a recurring pattern that has been happening across the history of Israel. So that's what I'm going to try to lay out for you now, this pattern And if you pick up the pattern, you'll see exactly what Haggai is hitting at 
in his book. So again, we'll start, we'll start with Abraham. Abraham is the man called out by God. He's going to multiply his seed and make a nation called Israel. He makes a promise to Abraham that you're going to have many offspring, and I'm going to give you this offspring, this land, and it's going to be wonderful. He also tells him, before I bring them into that land, they will be enslaved by another nation for about 400 years. And that's exactly what happens The people of Israel end up in Egypt, and they are made slaves and treated harshly. But then there is a deliverance. God starts his work by freeing his people from the hand of the Egyptians. By mighty signs and wonders, he takes them out of that place. He institutes the Passover. The people celebrate. Like the horse and his rider, God has thrown them into the sea. What a wonderful God who has delivered us. After working this deliverance, there is God's call, his gracious call for allegiance. He makes the covenant on Sinai. I have delivered you. I am your God. Here's how we're going to stay in relationship. Here is how you are going to be thankful to me and honor me as your God. Here are the rules the rules for remaining in this allegiance with me, for being my people. The disobedient, those who were faithless, those who didn't heed the covenant would be cut off from the people. Those who obeyed would be blessed. And in this call to gracious allegiance, he has them do a building. He gives them the rules and the laws, and he says, build me a tabernacle according to these specifications, so that I might live with you and and meet with you there. And you can come and offer your sacrifices there, and your sins will be forgiven. I will dwell among you, and he will show forth his glory. So he delivers them. He makes a gracious call for allegiance. And what do the people do? There is a response of disobedience. Despite what he did to take them out of their slavery, despite an offer to be united to the one true God in covenant relationship, they grumble. They're not happy with what God has done. They're not happy with the circumstances he's given to them. They are faithless. They are not careful to obey the words of their God, but they do their own thing. And so then there is a consequence. Because the people have grumbled against him, He says that you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years till you all die. And then the next generation I will bring in. So deliverance, a call for gracious allegiance, a response of disobedience and a consequence. And it happens again. So they're in the wilderness And God, again, works a deliverance. He goes, okay, next generation, let's go. I'm going to take you out of the wilderness. I'm going to bring you into the land that I promised to your forefathers. I'm going to reestablish this covenant with you. Here are my words. It's a call to gracious allegiance. Obey me. Seek after me. Love me. Follow me. I am your God. You will be my people. And as he brings them into the land... Israel grows great in strength and in wealth and in number. He says, build me a building. 
David has a desire to build the house of God. He says, no, Solomon's going to do it. Solomon, the third king of Israel, builds the temple. And they bring sacrifices. And they meet before God. And God's glory comes and fills the temple. You're stable now. You're in the land. The temple is here. I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell among you. We're going to be together, me and my people. And how do the people respond? Disobedience. Right? Israel has seasons of success. As the kingship goes on, there, there are few kings who are obedient and try to gather the people to follow the covenant. But most of the kings and most of the people are faithless. They don't like what God has laid down. They don't believe God. They want to do their own thing. Lord says, all day long, I've held my hands out to a disobedient and contrary people. And because of this response of disobedience, there is a consequence. After about 400 years of kings, and despite God's loving warnings, they become so evil and so idolatrous that they receive the strongest punishment according to the covenant, which is exile. You were in the land. You had the opportunity for gracious allegiance. You disobeyed me. Now you're out of the land. God's presence leaves the temple. He brings another nation in, Babylon, to capture the people and to drag them forcibly out of the land and kill many of them and to destroy the temple. No more. You didn't listen. It's over. Even in the midst of that, God's grace is twinkling. Even as he tells the people leading up to the exile, this is going to happen. You guys are done. You're receiving the punishment. You're out. But I'm going to bring back a remnant. There is, there is deliverance coming. This will not be forever. There will be repentance among my people. Deliverance, gracious allegiance, response for disobedience, consequence. And it happens again. After 70 years in exile, God works another deliverance. He stirs the hearts of kings to free his people and to send them back into the land. He's going to reestablish them in his mercy so that they may take up obedience to him and bring him glory that he might take pleasure in this remnant of people and dwell with them forever. And it gives them a gracious offer of allegiance. Right? This is what you're going to do. You're going to go back into the land and you're going to rebuild my temple that I might dwell with you. What will be the response of the people? Let's open to the book of Haggai. And when you get there, please stand. I'll read the text and pray. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lays in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Father, let us hear the words of your prophet. Let us see the words in scripture. Move our hearts to understanding and to obedience, and to joy. Lord, be pleased with your people through the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Amen. So as we move through the prophecy that we've read in Haggai, we're going to go through five points for those of you who are taking notes, notes, the people, the problem, the prodding, the punishment, and his pleasure. First, the people. Verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. What a cast of characters. In order to understand what's going on in Haggai, you got to know who these people are. Darius, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. Who's Darius? Well, Darius is the king of Persia. Persia was the kingdom that came in and conquered Babylon after Babylon had conquered Israel. So now Persia is in control and Darius is the king. Darius's claim to fame is renewing the decree of Cyrus. Oh, who's Cyrus? Another guy we got to know. Cyrus was the king who was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, who after the exile would then set the Israelites free. And that's exactly what happened. The king of Persia, Cyrus, makes a decree that says, we can send all the Jews home. Everybody who wants to can go back to the land of Jerusalem and build your temple. And you know what? I'm going to give you money and funds and protections. You just go do it. Say a prayer for me while you're there because I don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. And he is moved to do so. So the people go back to the land under Cyrus and they begin to build up the temple. But when they get there, they are opposed by the other people in the land who are living there. They say, who are these people coming back in our hood? Trying, trying to build up a place and form a nation. They're going to cause problems for us. We're not happy with this. And so they send letters back to the king and to those who are in power and through threatening the people of Israel and coming against them and through some diplomatic moves, they kind of shut the building project down. And so the people of Israel stopped building the temple for about 17 years. And it's under Darius Somebody sends a letter to Darius, says, hey, these people in Israel are trying to do this thing over here. What do you think? 
And the Israelites say, well, check the decree of Cyrus. Go, go in the record, see what Cyrus said. And he finds the decree of Cyrus, and he says, oh, oh, this was written down that they should be let to go back and build the temple. Let them do it and send them some more money. Let's go. And so this is Darius's claim to fame that he allowed them to continue the building. God used him to restart the work. Uh, don't confuse this Darius with Darius the Mede that you find in Daniel 5.31. Darius the Mede is an older king. This Darius is generally known as Darius Histapes or Darius the Great. And it's under Darius's reign that Haggai begins prophesying in the second year of his reign on the sixth month on the first day of the month. Who's Haggai? Well, he's the prophet of the Lord, and that is about all that we know about him. He's, other than that, he's a non-entity. His only claim to fame is that he speaks the word of God, and the word that he spoke from God is recording in Scripture. We know nothing about him. His name means something like my feasts, but that's it. He did prophesy together with Zechariah. So if you're thinking historically, I, I found this out last year. I never knew how all these things were put together. So Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that produce a history together of the people after they've come back into the land. Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets that are prophesying to the people during that time. So if you want to get a fuller picture of what's happening here, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, you can put all those together. All right, who's Zerubbabel? The most important thing about Zerubbabel is that he is of the tribe of Judah. He is descended from David. He is a direct ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. No Zerubbabel, no Christ. There's some confusion about Zerubbabel's parentage. We find him in the genealogies of Luke 3, Matthew 1, and 1 Chronicles 3, 17 to 19. And in there, exactly who Zerubbabel's dad is, is confusing. One text says one thing, one text says another. Why does that happen? Well, we have some trouble with genealogies in the scripture because when the Jews recorded their genealogies, sometimes who the father was said to be was the father, biologically. Sometimes in genealogies, they skip generations. So like our father is Abraham. Well, he's not our father. He's way back there. Sometimes in the genealogies, oh, this one was the son of him when actually maybe he's his grandson. And sometimes it's not the biological parentage that's in the genealogy, but it's a legal parentage. Either it was some kind of adoption or this one grew up in this one's house. So he is called his father because he's going to inherit from him. And we don't have all the details on that. But what is clear about Zerubbabel, whether it was by inheritance or whether it was by biological genealogy, is that he was in the line of the kings of Israel. He was the heir to the throne of David. And this title, son of Sheltiel, identifies him as Jewish royalty. Sheltiel was the son of the king of Israel who was taken into exile, Jeconiah. Jeconiah is taken away. His son Sheltiel is just in exile, not ruling anything. Sheltiel has a son, Zerubbabel. When the people go back, Zerubbabel 
presumably because of his royal status, is appointed by the Persian king, the governor of Judah. All right, these are your people. You go lead them. You be the, you be the sub-ruler over there. And then Joshua. Joshua is identified as the son of Jehozadak. Well, who's Jehozadak? Jehozadak was the son of the high priest Sariah. When Jerusalem got destroyed by Babylon, Zariah was the high priest. He had a son, Jehozadak, who was in Babylon, maybe exercising some kind of function. Jehozadak has a son named Joshua. When they come back to the land, Joshua's lineage identifies him as the rightful high priest. So in this picture, we have two of the leaders of Jerusalem, the one who holds the right to the throne and the one who holds the right to the high priesthood now serving as the leaders back in Jerusalem. And God comes and speaks to them through Haggai. Whenever there's a problem, who do you go to? You go to the leaders. You go to the head. Sin in the garden. Adam, where are you? Sin in Israel. Zerubbabel, Joshua, let's talk. God identifies the problem with them in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is the problem. This is not just a statement, hey, I heard people are saying something. This is the problem. These people are saying, this is a complaint. This is a chastisement. This in the cycle that we've seen is the response of disobedience. After the gracious call to allegiance, these people are saying, it's not time to build the house of the Lord. It doesn't tell us their motivation for saying so, but we can speculate that perhaps it was laziness, perhaps it was fear, perhaps they had misread the Jeremiah prophecy about the seven years that would pass by, and they're kind of like, no, there's still two more years left. We don't know exactly why, but they're not doing what they're supposed to do. The bottom line is that they are wrong. It is time to rebuild the house of the Lord. God brought them back into the land for this very purpose. This is how they would display their allegiance to him. And these people are in quiet but willful rebellion against the word of the Lord. But despite the weakness of his people, God's plans are never, ever thwarted. He will carry out what he intends to do, and he will fulfill his promises. And so he begins to do a work. So he prods his people. This is the prodding. In verse 3 and 4, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Right, this doesn't say he spoke to Jehozadak and Joshua. This word comes to all the people. Is it time for you? Is it time for you yourselves, he said? Well, this is not a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is no. It is not time for all of you to be dwelling in your paneled houses while my house, my temple, my place remains in ruins. The primary problem here is misplaced priorities. This is how God prods them. He makes them aware. The primary problem is misplaced priorities. You could slap that on a bumper sticker and put it up somewhere. As a pastor, as I counsel, as I disciple, as I look at my own life, the primary problem, 
when I'm in sin, when I'm doing wrong, the primary problem when people are having issues is their priorities are misplaced. We want what we want and not what God wants. We live like our desires and our plans are more significant than his. This causes the problem. We give more attention to the counsel and the direction of the world than the counsel and the direction of the word of God. This is a problem. This is disobedience. And in Haggai's time, this is this disobedience is manifested in these paneled houses. You know what wainscoting is? Some, some of the translations say in your wainscoted houses, right? You have just a plain wall, and then you put this fancy little border up along the bottom that maybe protects it from chairs and gives it a nice little look to it, some fanciness, right? You're living in these paneled, wainscoted houses. You don't just have houses that are just dwelling places so you have somewhere to sleep and you're warm. You're building a kingdom. You got paneling on the walls. It's nice. It's dolled up. You put work and money into it. And my house lays in ruins. It's crumbled. The people have abandoned God's purposes for their own purposes. They've embraced worldly priorities and comfort and left behind their love for God. This is disobedience, and it brings out consequences. The punishment. Haggai verse 1, verse 5 to 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Consider your ways, he says. Observe your path. Pay attention to how things are going for you. You're out there sowing your fields, and stuff's not growing. Right? You're eating and you're seeking this satisfaction, but you can't find it. You're still hungry. You're drinking and you're trying to quench your thirst, and, and you're still thirsty. Why are these things happening to you? Have you thought about it? Have you thought about why you're living in such futility? This is what happens to them in their disobedience against the Lord. You paint a modern picture of, of this kind of futility that they were experiencing. If you're a mom and you like to keep a clean house and you've got young children, how long does your house stay clean? You clean in, you clean, you clean, you turn around, <gasps> Cheerios on the floor, right? There's, there's this frustrating futility of you're trying to achieve something, but something's going on around you that's just not allowing it to happen, or you have a car and, and your little tire light comes on, your little low-pressure tire light. So you go to the gas station, like, I know how to fix this. Psst. You fill it up, tire light goes off, good. Driving home, five minutes, the light comes back on. You go back, you get home, you get out your home pump. Psst, 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 psst. You drive to work, you're like, good. And the tire light comes back on. Why? Because there's a slow leak. Right? There's something that is frustrating your purposes. And you're like, ah, this is essentially what is happening to Israel in all of life at this time. They're farming and they're living and nothing is working out the way that they want it to. And the Lord's saying, think about why this is happening to you. Right in verses 9 to 11, he fills it out some more. He says, you look for much and behold, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. God is kind. He doesn't just leave them continually stumbling, trying to figure out why. He says, let me tell you why. This frustration and futility is coming upon you because you are breaking my covenant, because you do not love me, because you are not looking toward my house. All of these things that are playing out are the things that the covenant stipulates will happen. Drought, famine, lack of productivity in the land, all these things will come upon you for disobedience. So if they had any consideration for the word of God, they would have looked around at their situation. They would have recognized something's wrong here. Right? There's some kind of correction we need to make because God is not blessing us at all. But by nature, people are regularly blind to their own situation. They can't interpret the times or the seasons. They are ignorant and or self-deceived. It's the sheer grace of the Lord when he calls in and wakes us up. Says, look at what's going on. Pay attention. Consider your ways. Search your heart. And then those who are faithful will hear that prodding, will hear that call, and they will respond accordingly. God does this because he will not allow the weakness of his people to thwart his purposes because he has aims for his pleasure and for his glory which brings us to the next point his pleasure Haggai 1 7 to 8 it's his word to the people thus says the Lord of hosts consider your ways go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified says the Lord Now, if you look at the structure of the passage, you'll see that there was punishment and an explanation of why, punishment and an explanation of why, and then right in the middle, right, he puts his command to them. This is a a Hebrew way of writing that's supposed to give emphasis. So these two things on the side are sharpening down to this point. This is what I want you to do. Consider your ways and go build the house. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what your calling is. Go do it. Consider your ways. Observe your path. Pay attention to how things have gone for you and make the appropriate corrections. And when you do it, I will be pleased with it. If you remember Cain, after you brought the sacrifice and God had no regard for it, he says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? You know what the right thing is to do. If you would just do it, things would go well with you. Open with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 to 2. I just love these verses, but but they do have a solid connection to, to where we are. Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. All this time we've been talking about the importance of the temple. Build the temple. God will be pleased. As we look here in Isaiah, we see God doesn't need someone to build him a house. He's omnipresent. He dwells in all of reality. Heaven is his throne. The earth is my footstool. What is, what is the house that you will build for me? Let me tell you what the point really is. Here's what I'm looking at. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. So it's not specifically about the temple itself. He's not saying, just go lay some bricks on top of bricks, and I will be pleased because you laid brick on brick, because I said lay the brick. What he's looking for is the obedience of his people. What he's looking for is a people who hears the word of God and says, yes, Lord. We will do it because we love you. We will do it because we are evil and wicked people and you have shown us grace. And that's where the Lord's glory is. His glory is in the obedience and the allegiance of this people that he has called to himself. This obedience is the appropriate response to God graciously calling you into allegiance with him. Now, the old covenant, the law, did nothing to bring that about. It just said, this is what you need to do to stay in my good graces. But it did not at all help the people to do those things. And what it actually revealed is the fact that people are unable to keep all the commands of the Lord. So God has to do something. And that's what the new covenant is all about. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 33. God is explaining what the new covenant is going to be. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27, gives us some functions of this covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The old covenant just laid out what it was. Do it and live. Don't do it. Die. The new covenant says, I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my law within you, and I will make you careful to obey my laws 
and my statutes. Now, if you notice in Jeremiah, this was a covenant for Israel. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with Israel. So what do we have to do with that covenant? Well, it's what the scripture says. Those who believe are grafted in. You are grafted into this new covenant that the Lord makes with Israel. And likewise, those who were of Israel, of Abraham by the flesh, who are faithless, are cut out. And so the church now holds the identity as God's people, called rightly the Israel of God. Jesus Christ changes the pattern of history. That's what he came to do. God delivers. He calls to allegiance. The people respond in disobedience. And then he has to hand out consequences over and over and over. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to short circuit that response of my people. I'm going to forgive them for their sins. And I'm going to give them a new heart so that they will be careful to obey me. And I will have my way and have my work for my glory and my pleasure and for the good of his people. And so Jesus, by his blood, seals the deal on that new covenant, purchases the forgiveness of his people, and sends the spirit that his people would obey, would love him, would be obedient Now, since his people, as long as they remain in the flesh, still carry the nature of sin, their obedience will not be perfect, but their obedience will be intentional and it will be observable. It will be intentional. It will be the desire of God's people to obey him. They will pursue that with vigor because the spirit has been given to them to do so. And it will be observable. God will be glorified in the changed life and behaviors and responses of his people. So that not only does the person that he has changed get the benefit in themselves to praise and worship God, but others will look and see at the congregation of this people that God has changed and made careful to obey him and follow after him. And God will receive glory. In Haggai chapter 1, the observable thing that God is looking for is the building of this temple. If you loved me, you would build my house. The question before us now is now that God has spoken, will they do it? Will they build the house? Come back next week. No, I'm not preaching next week. But I'm going to cover that. The next time that I'm in Haggai, I want, to, I want to end today questioning. I want to end today on that question. Will they do it? And what will we do? Right, the application for today as we look at our older brother and what's going on with him is, is for us to consider our ways. Consider our ways. I got four questions Four questions that that you can ask yourself and and discuss with your brethren as you consider what is going on with you, since the same God that deals with them deals with you. Question number one, what are your priorities? The problem is misplaced priorities. Where 
are your priorities? What are the things that are important to you? What are you striving for? If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I can tell you 100% guaranteed all your priorities are off. Because all of creation was made from and through and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the way that you prioritize your life is not in line with that, you are off. Maybe what you're chasing after is possessions. Maybe your priority is your own pleasure. Maybe it's your reputation. Right? Just look, looking like a good person, some kind of common decency. All of those things have their place in the life of a human being. But if those things are not being pursued to the glory of God, then they are worthless and your priorities are off. Scripture tells us apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. God is not concerned with your aims or your pursuits if they are not looking towards him and driving towards his glory. There are some maybe even among us, who think that they are trying to please God, who would say, yes, my aim is to please God by my good works, but they don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as God, as, as Savior, as risen from the dead, as ruling over all things. The scripture says no one who doesn't have the Son has the Father. So if you're not doing all that you do for the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in him, your priorities are off. Psalm 16.4 tells us that the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. If you're not serving the Lord Christ, your priorities are terribly skewed and it's going to work to your destruction. But God is gracious and you may repent. You may repent today and set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on hearing his word and moving in obedience and pleasing him. Now, if you're a believer, say, I'm, I'm born again, I'm in Jesus Christ, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you're saved, and we rejoice because faith in Christ sets us free from the power of sin. But very frequently, even though we're freed from the power, we just, we just kind of slide ourselves back into that realm. We give ourselves over to this slave master that we've been freed from. We get entangled in the same things that unbelievers get entangled in. Possessions, reputation, common decency. And we lose our focus on serving the Lord Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Spirit comes in to correct that. God comes after his own with the command to examine yourself, consider your ways. And those who have the Spirit will examine, and they will consider, and they will find things off, and they will work to correct them by the grace of God, and they will show the obedience of a new heart. If your priorities, whether you claim Christ or not, don't reveal Christ as your Savior, as your Master, as your aim, and as your treasure, you must repent. You must turn to him. You must change your ways. Go get the wood and build the house that he might take pleasure in it. Right? This is what you were saved for. This is the pattern that is being broken and changed. Slaves in Egypt, 
Massive deliverance in Exodus. Build the tabernacle. Fail. Delivered out of the wilderness. Brought into the land. Build me a temple that I may dwell with you and be pleased with you in your obedience. Fail. Go into exile. Delivered out of exile. Send you back into the land like I promised you. Build my temple and be obedient to me and I will dwell with you forever. Fail. Trapped in death, the sinfulness of our own hearts. Disobedient, rebellious, and God works a deliverance. He works a deliverance. He sends his son, sends his son to receive the wrath of God for sin on the cross so that everyone who believes in him can have eternal life forever and ever. Amen. And he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. The body builds itself up in love as each part is working properly. And God's building will not fail because he will work the hearts of his people to do obedience and to do the work that he desires to his good, to our good, and to his pleasure and glory. Where are your priorities? Do your priorities reveal the changed heart that comes through the new covenant? Question number two, what poor excuses am I making to hold back from doing the Lord's work in the building of his house? See, in Haggai, this people says this is not time for building the house of the Lord. What do we say? Oh, once I get settled, right? once I get settled over here, then I'll obey the Lord and serve the Lord. Once I get a little older, then I'll really be serious about obeying and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Once I graduate school, or I'm really busy right now, once I get out, then I'll start reading the word and going to church. And when I reach my career goals, I'm really busy right now trying to build up you know, and, and really get established in this company. I just don't have the time to to serve the Lord and be involved deeply with him. But when I'm done, when I'm done, oh, my kids are young. Things are so busy right now. I got to take them everywhere. Like after they leave the house and they're out on their own, then, then I'll, I'll follow the Lord and really be intentional about being with him. When I retire, when I retire and I really have time and I'm done with work, then, then I'll serve the Lord. Or maybe it's when, when the Lord gives me what I've been looking for, then, right, when I get a wife, when I have children, when I have more time, when I have better circumstances, then, then I'll be really serious about serving and loving the Lord. Time is now. The Lord says the time is now. Is it time for you to be pursuing all the things that you want rather than building up the Lord's house? Scripture gives us the priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else comes after that. Everything else is secondary. And he says all these things will be added to you. Everything that you need, if you orient your heart to serving and loving the Lord and obeying him, everything that you need will be heaped upon you. We're kind of like, I have this list of things that I need. 
So I'm going to go grab them and then I'll try to pull the Lord along behind me. Like I'll, I'll let him get in once I've established everything that I think I need. Poor excuses, poor excuses. Now, you might not in this season be able to serve the Lord in the way that you want. Right? We, we can develop these idealized ideas of what it means to serve and obey the Lord. Like, oh, well, if I can't go on mission, then I'm just a horrible person. Or, you know, I would really serve in the worship team, but I can't do X, Y, and Z. So, so I would do it, but I can't serve the Lord. Or, oh, everybody can't be a preacher, right? So, so good for you. You get to serve the Lord, right? I got a job. I got things to do. And all these kinds of things where you might not be able to serve in, ideal, in an idealized way, but there is something that every one of you can do, no matter what your situation is, to contribute to the building of the church. Maybe it's just a more intense funk, uh, focus on encouraging the brethren, which will build up the church. Maybe it's finding a way to disciple younger saints or a younger saint with some time that you have in your life showing hospitality, just being really anxious to love others, like Ed preached for the last couple of weeks, show hospitality, love the brethren. These are not optional commands. Whatever your life situation is, whatever your circumstance is, find it somewhere. Serve the Lord with your life. Be intentional about your obedience. Your love for Christ in your living should be intentional and observable. Question number three. Are you frustrated? Are you frustrated? The thing that the Lord used to move me towards salvation was this deep sense of frustration. In my mind, I had done it all. I had the career. I was making money. I had the girl. I had the car. I had the place. I was good. I had everything that on my little list I said I need. I said, tick, 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 tick. I got it. But there was something. I didn't have it. It was a frustration. And so I went looking. What is it? I don't know. And then the Lord was gracious to bring a brother in with the word of the gospel that answered every question. This is why you feel the way that you do. This is why you have no satisfaction. Because whether you know it or not, you as a created eternal being have need of a relationship with your creator through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you don't have that, you're lost. You're lost and you're frustrated. Whether you recognize it or not, you could sit around as an unbeliever and say, well, I'm just kind of depressed. You know, I'm just, I'm just feeling discontentment or I'm just struggling with anger or I'm just, I'm just an envious person or I'm just ambitious. So I just got to keep going or, or I'm just apathetic. I don't care. Right. It's not just a matter of personality. It's a matter of because you don't have the Lord. And because you don't have the Lord, your living is off. Your life is off and you are met with frustration and futility. But the Lord fills all in all. At his right hand, there is fullness of joy. He supplies every need, a refuge to run to in all of your frustration. So just hand it to him. Just give it to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, my life is yours. Fill me. Submit to him and you will be filled. Those of us who claim Christ were not under the old covenant. 
So even as we fall into disobedience from time to time, the curse is never going to come upon you. You will never be cast out into exile. But the Lord does discipline those whom he loves. And when our priorities begin to skew, what the Lord will often do is withdraw the sense of his presence. And, and you will be affected with this kind of frustration, discontentment, a shallow fellowship, no lack for fellowship, dull prayer, no prayer, lack of joy, mental distress, anxiety. All of these things come from a lack of full communion with the Lord because we're moving into our own disobedience. An old commentator wrote, a disobedient Christian cannot be a happy Christian. John Piper writes, half-hearted Christians are not happy Christians. Where the joy comes from is full submission to the Lord. And when we pursue that, God says, you will find joy and satisfaction in me. Look up that article. Why are so many Christians unhappy? By John Piper. He, He fills that out beautifully. What we need to do for our good, for his glory, or for our joy is to submit ourselves fully in obedience to God. And then we'll find what we're looking for. Last question. Will you respond appropriately to the prodding or will you kick against the goads? God prods you for your good to move you in the right direction. God is not frustrated by the weakness of his people, but he comes and he moves them along. And the way that he moves them along is he prods them. And when, when, when they were plodding fields with oxes in the old days, they would have a sharp stick and they would prod the ox. So the ox would say, oh, right, keep it moving, keep going. The ox goad. God goads us with conviction. The spirit starts moving your heart. You start feeling like, oh, Oh, I am off. Oh, this, this thing is wrong in my life. You know, and you got to start moving in the right direction. The way that you would kick against the goad, Lord, stop. Right? You might say, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? Without giving this prayerful consideration, without going home and think about these questions and sitting with the Lord and saying, Lord, what are my priorities? Like, search my heart. Let me know what's going on inside. I would just say, no, I'm fine. I'm a good Christian. I'm doing it all right. I'm good. Just keep it moving. All right. Now, you might indeed, like Paul, say, I am not aware of anything against myself. Right? You might be walking in joy and peace and contentment and your conscience is clear. Well, well, if, if that's right, then great. <laughs> Praise God and amen. But don't take it for granted that just because you think you're fine, that you're fine. Sit down with your father. Talk to him about it. Let him tell you where you're at. Or you might be sitting in the pew right now mounting some argument as to why you can't serve Christ, why you can't turn to Christ right now, why your life should not be dedicated to serving the Lord and his church, kicking against the goat. Right? I, I do feel kind of guilty, but this, this, and that reason. That's why I shouldn't listen to this guy. Well, the Lord is prodding, and you're fighting it, kicking against the goads. Right? But the goad is a sharp stick, and if you kick against it, who's getting hurt? You. Right? Not responding to the prodding of the Lord only hurts you. And so that's why this word comes to you, to, to prick you a little bit. Right, to make you consider your ways, 
Let's see, Lord. Please lead me in ways of righteousness so that I don't have to be poked anymore. I do not neglect or despise the gracious call of God to consider your ways and repent. Do that today. Jesus says, come one and come all. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and frustrated and stifled, feeling pointless, apathetic, hopeless. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. He will give you peace and joy by his spirit and he will give you strength and desire and energy for the work for his glory. Come to him. He's good. Oh, Father, Father, move us in the right direction. Break our stubbornness, shatter our excuses. Lead us forth in truth for your glory, Lord. You are king over all, and you deserve all praise and honor and obedience, and, and we desire to render it. But we do it alone by your power. So speak to us, Lord. Communicate with us. Show us the way to go that we might walk in it by the Spirit. Amen.